say? Good morning. I'm glad you're here with us. Again, my name is Jim. Uh, if you would turn to 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings 18, that's where we're going to be uh, this morning together. Last week, we started a series on the individual, the person of Elijah, a man like us. As when you read in, in James, you'll read that it says that he was a man with a nature like us, and yet he prayed fervently, and God answered his prayer many, many times. Specifically, he's talking about when he prayed that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't. And it's always a reminder, as we oftentimes look at people in the Old Testament, that's why I love doing Old Testament figure studies. We look at them, we're like, man, I'd never amount to that. I'd never be able to be like Elijah. I'd never be able to do the things he did. But I'm always constantly trying to remind us that he was an individual who was used powerfully by God, just like you can be used powerfully by God. He has a nature just like us. He's not a super Christian or some special individual. He's an individual that God chose to use in that moment, and God wants to use you in your moment in life every single day. And so as we've been looking at, we started in chapter 17, and today we're going to be continuing on in chapter 18. I'll just give you a heads up. We have a ton of Scripture to go to across. So I'm going to race as fast as I can through all the Scripture uh, it's narrative, so it's just fun to read, and if you'd like to, later on, uh, today or tomorrow, this week, read it in, in more depth, but it's a lot just in the narrative of telling the story. And, and I just want to ask you a question before we start. Uh, man, if, if you think about your life, you remember uh, certain moments in your life, can you think back to a time in your life where you were tricked? You were maybe sold some false prophet, or false prophet, false product. You were hoodwinked, or as the kids these days say in, on TikTok, you were duped. There's no young people in here. They're like, stop, please, Jim. <laughs> I'll never forget a time I, I went to school in Pensacola, Florida. And I'll never forget, I was in an uh, electronic store, and uh, you know, I think I was like, maybe a freshman year. I was like 18 or 19 years old. And a guy came into me. He says, hey, man, you're looking at, I was looking at stereo equipment, I guess. And he says, hey, Jim. I didn't say Jim, he didn't know me, that's, that's wrong. Uh, he, he came in and he said, hey man, uh, do you, man, you're looking at stereo equipment, I got something for you in the parking lot. I'll just tell you this is free. Never follow that person, okay? <laughs> he says, yeah, I got something, man. I'm telling you, like, it was like this, this blowout sale and I picked it up, they had to get rid of it. Come check this out, it's 250 bucks. And so I followed the guy and uh, I went into the back of this shady van, no windows, another sign, get out of there. And I'm looking at the stereo system and I begin to like look up and, and he's like, dude, this is like a $2,500 stereo. I'll give it to you for 250. And I'm like, of course I'm like, this is amazing. Like, thank you, God. Like, this is, you know, this is like a gift of God's grace to my life, right? As a poor young college student. And, and so I gave him $250. And I took this stereo and I went back and I, I took it back to my, my, my place where I was living. And I was showing my friends and we Googled and looked up the stereo. And sure enough, I don't remember what brand it was, but it was like $25 hundred dollars. And immediately my friends were like, you just bought a stolen stereo. <laughs> and I was like, well, I didn't steal it. You know, I was like, again, this is God's favor, my, his grace in my life. And 
it didn't take long before it started crackling and popping and like all the, the little stickers with the logos on the front fell off. And before, I, before long, I just realized like, I was duped, I was tricked. And I lost $250, the cost of my believing or being fooled by something that was fake was $250. And it seems like insignificant now, but to a young college student, that was huge for me. I was so upset that I had been tricked and I believed the lie that some guy sold me in a parking lot in a van that was so believable, you know? Um, and it's interesting, I, I share that story today because, man, today, and when we're looking at the story with Elijah, and maybe one of the most famous texts about the story of Elijah in, in Mount Carmel, and it's interesting because they're dealing, as we look in the text, we're going to be talking a lot about idols, idols that have bound up the people of Israel, that have uh, the King Ahab uh, really fooled, and the people there fooled, and the cost was something even greater to the counterfeit God that they were being presented. And it's free. I'll tell you from the very beginning that we're not going to get into it and be like, man, at the end of it, like, man, that's awesome. Ahab is such an idiot. Man, I want to look in the mirror and be like, man, Jim is. Because how often are we ourselves just, just tricked and fooled by the shiny things in the world that present themselves really as God. We might not say they're God, but we think that in the back of our mind that they're going to give us something that only God can give. And today we're just, if you look at 1 Corinthians, 1 Kings, excuse me, chapter 18, there's this spectacular demonstration of God's presence, His power, and His proving that He is the true and only God there is that exists. And if you recall from chapter 17, um, Elijah accomplished some pretty amazing things, right? He's being sustained by the, uh, by the river, by ravens, and he goes, and he's sustained by a river, and man, or excuse me, by a, 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 a widow there, and he, he's literally performing miracles in the sense that, hey, more flour and more oil is just going to continually come. If that's not enough, he, it's the first resurrection in Scripture when he raises this widow's uh, um, boy to life. Then you move into chapter 18 where we're going to get today, and it seems like, man, you can't get more spectacular than that, but it does. As we look at this story, what I want you to see is kind of maybe really a theology of, uh, of idolatry, really what Scripture has to say about fake or counterfeit gods. And so I just want to see a few things. I'm going to read the text, like I said, and then we'll just kind of walk through the story and make some points of application. So if you would, chapter 18 of 1 Kings Look with me uh, in verse 1 all the way down to verse 19. It says, After many days the word of the Lord came to Elijah in a third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab. So he had pretty strict instructions. And I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went and showed himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs of water and all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. 
So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself, and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, It is you, my lord Elijah. And he, said, he answered him, It is I. Go, tell your lord, behold, Elijah is here. And he said, How have I sinned that you, ha- that you would have your servant in... T- uh, you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me. As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say he is not there, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had, found, had, that they had not found you. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I have gone from you, the spirit of the Lord will carry you, I know not where. And so when I came, when I come and tell Ahab, and he and he cannot find you, he will kill me, although your servant, although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, and I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them by bread and water, and now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here, and he will kill me. And Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. In verse 17, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, it is you, you troubler of Israel. And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, Send and gather all Israel to meet me at Mount Carmel and 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So when you're looking at the idolatry here, when you see it in the life of Ahab, the first thing I want you to see is that idols corrupt our lives. And, it, and we just kind of got to look back a little bit to, to be able to engage with chapter 18 to see this, right? Elijah shows up on the scene. We know nothing about the prophet at all, really. We don't even know he's a prophet yet. He delivers the news. It's not going to rain for three years. And there's a coming drought. And, and the famine is coming on um, the people of God, really, as judgment for worshiping false gods. And so he makes this prediction that God tells him to. And we know a little bit about King Ahab. If you read back in chapter 16, it says Ahab was really an ungodly king. In fact, it says that he did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him in verse 30. It says, and Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Well, the main way in which Ahab provoked the anger of the Lord, provoked judgment on him and the people of Israel is through idolatry, right? He married a foreign princess, Jezebel, who who their people worshipped uh, uh, Baal and Asherah. And and because of that, now, I mean, she's convinced... She's convinced her husband, Ahab, to build altars to Baal and Asherah. And now there's this mixing of worship of God, Yahweh, the only God, with other gods, right? And if you remember the the, the Ten Commandments with the first one, anybody? Have no other gods before me. That's like the the starter, right? And so they're doing exactly contrary to what God has said, right? And the start of chapter 17 He shows up on the scene. He tells Ahab what's up. There's this coming drought, right? 
Ahab receives this prediction, like this is going to happen, and it's a prophet of the Lord. Ahab knows this, all this. Doesn't this seem like a perfect opportunity for Ahab to repent, right? As a warning, he knows, right? What Deuteronomy said, that if you, if you go and worship other gods, I'm going to cut off rain and moisture from the land, and you'll be surely perish, as we talked about last week. And this is a perfect opportunity for Ahab, hearing from a prophet, right? Much like David did when he heard of his sin. He repented before the Lord. And now here Ahab does what? It'd be a great opportunity to repent, smash all the idols, tear everything down. So what do we see him do here in chapter 18? Is there any sign of repentance? Is there any sign of like, man, uh, I did something wrong. I need to change my life. No, instead, he's busying himself with searching for food for his horses and his mules, probably his military horses and then his farm mules. And he says, Obadiah, who's another prophet, hey, come here with me. We're going to spread out and we're going to search the land for food because if we don't, man, it's not going to be good, right? And along the way, in Obadiah's search, he finds no food, but he does find Elijah, Right? And Elijah tells Obadiah, go before the king and tell him Elijah is back. And Obadiah is like, what, are, what did I do? You want to get me killed? Like, we, we've been searching for you. He's like, man, we, 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 we've looked everywhere and we were unable to find you. He's like, I'm not going. I know what's going to happen. As soon as I leave here, yeah, you say that, and then the Spirit of God is going to whisk you away in a moment. You'll be gone and hiding again. I'm going to go before the, the, the King Ahab, and he's going to kill me. I'm going to have to deal with the wrath of it, right? And he explains how he's been secretly plotting against Ahab and rescuing uh, God's prophets, more, right around 100, and hiding them in caves and feeding them and going against Jezebel, so I can imagine that, man, I can only imagine what Jezebel is going to do to me if I do this. But anyways, he says, no, it's not going to happen. I promise you, the Lord's commanding you, I'm going to go and see King Ahab. So Obadiah goes, and he finds the king, and he tells him, and he goes out to meet Elijah and Ahab. Again, you'd think he would have some sort of soft heart, like, hey, I've been doing wrong. I've mixed this worship. What's the first thing out of his mouth? The first thing out of his mouth is, it is you, you troubler of Israel. Why is he a troubler? Because he's the one who said, hey, it's not going to rain for a few years, pretty much like you're doomed. And then immediately afterwards, God's like, hey, go hide by a river. Go hide with this, this widow. You need to go in hiding because they're going to look for you, not only just to kill you, but hey, if you're the guy who stopped the rain, how do you start the rain? You find the guy who stopped it. And so here he is, man, in this moment, he has every opportunity to repent. But instead, he says, me, you troubler of Israel. And what does he say back? I have not troubled Israel. But you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned what? The commandments of God and followed the Baals. He's forsaken the commandments of God. He's mixing this worship of God and something else. God and Baal. God and Asherah. And all that comes with it, right? And what did I say? The first thing is, man, uh, is the idols corrupt our lives. And the corruption has been the mixture of this and God's judgment and wrath come upon it. So let's ask you just real quick questions. Pretty straightforward, pretty easy one, fluff question. When's the last time you worshiped an idol? You're probably like, Jim, I don't have any of those. I don't have a shrine in my house or my office. And, you know, I don't, I don't worship idols, Jim, okay? I'm a good Christian. But it's amazing. 
for them back then, yes, they worshiped idols. It was actually like poles and statues and temples and all of this stuff which mixed worship with Yahweh. But when you look at our own lives, you might say, Jim, I don't really worship idols, but I, I, I just don't think that's true. You probably worshiped idols yesterday. Maybe even this morning. Maybe sitting in your seat right now is a form of it for you. This last year, we lost an amazing man of faith, Mr. Tim Keller. I'll never forget the time I read his book, Counterfeit Gods. He has a definition of idols in his book, and it's this. What are idols in our lives? He says, anything more important to you than God. So just stop right there, and you're like, okay, I might have some, Jim. Anything, he says, that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. I think this last part is key. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. So I'll just ask you again, like when's the last time you worshiped an idol? Now with that definition, it might be a little bit different of a, of a response, right? Because I think it comes up in a lot of different ways in your life and in my life. Our selfish actions and shameful thoughts and things that we do are very often stemming from false gods or idols in our lives that we're actually serving every day. I'll give you some examples. Man, if you worship money, your life will be corrupted by greed and you'll lack generosity. Instead of looking at someone with, that, that has plight or someone that is, is struggling, you'll, you'll be very critical and all that rather than seeing a, an individual that desperately needs your help and your generosity, right? Man, if, if, you, if you worship power, your life will be corrupted with willingness to, to run over anyone and take advantage of people any way you can to reach power. And you see this all the time in politics. Right? If you worship success, then your life will be corrupted, be being a workaholic, right? And, and, and all of that, you'll be willing to sacrifice relationships with your children and your, your spouse and your friendships and even your church. Because you'll be like, man, hey, the God of success is telling me I need to work late today and I need to do more and I need to be more successful, right? Because, man, my, this is my God. You might not say that, but that's the way it plays out. Man, if you're, you're, your God is body image, You'll do anything you can to look a certain way that you'll be accepted by someone or, or, or some group of people, right? If it's security, you'll do whatever you have to to make sure that you are the one that's keeping you secure, secure in everything you do. And if it's sex, you'll allow it to ruin your marriage, your family, and destroy your life by what you look at on the internet or how you engage with coworkers, or whatever it might be, if it's your children. You'll allow it to dominate your life that their sports success is the most important thing in your life. And they need to have everything that I never had because my children are most important or the idol of being like your spouse. The man, I'll never be complete. Marriage is an amazing thing, but right, I'll never be complete if God doesn't bring me someone that I can do life with for the rest of my life. Right? I heard someone say once that a good thing is a bad thing when it becomes a God thing. 
It's not that any of, many of these things aren't bad. It's just more in the sense that, man, when they take the place of God, they ruin our lives. They, they, they corrupt our lives. They change our lives. And this is what Ahab is doing through the worship of Baal and the mixing of other things, right? But God calls him, right? Stop allowing these things to steal the affection that only the one true God is deserving of. I just want to give you something quickly. You might be struggling, like, I don't know, Jim. I don't know where I I am serving idols in my life. I just want to get you three T's that might help you determine. Where do you spend the most time? What do you use your treasure on the most? And what do you talk about the most? Those things might help you whittle down like, okay, I get it. This thing is probably an idol in my life and I'm giving it more affection and time and treasure and talking about than God. And I need to do something about that because it's really, when I get down to it, it's really corrupting my life. Well, we've got to continue on. Idols not only corrupt your life, they have no life. Look with me in verse 20. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel, gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go on limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. See, he leaves it open. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450, 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire on it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I'll call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves a bull and prepare it it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given to them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there's no voice, and there's no answer. And they limped around the altar that they had made. Now listen to this. Then at noon, I knew I liked Elijah. He began to mock them, saying, cry aloud, for he is God. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. Now jump down to verse 29. And as midday passed, the prophets of Baal raved on until the time of the offering of the obligation, but there was no voice, no answered, no one paid attention. See, idols have no life. Eight. Elijah requests this meeting, right? And Ahab's pretty confident. What I cannot get my mind around, idolatry tricks us so much so that we believe what we know is not true is true. We start doubting our beliefs and believing our doubts. This is what idolatry does to us. I mean, uh, Baal's not real. They've never seen Baal move. He's never done anything miraculous. And they think fire is going to shoot out of heaven? He's so confident. And all the prophets of Baal, they gather up, and he makes it clear his intention. Elijah says, this is the reason. How long will you be going between two? You're mixing worship, and I'm done with it. We're ending it right here. This is the reason for it all. Man, if Baal's it, I want to see fire come out of heaven. You can follow him. Man, if God, Yahweh, is the real God, I'm telling you, something's about to happen, and we're going to follow after 
him. Right? So Elijah knows, man, Baal's not going to show up. God's going to show up. Man, I just raised a boy from the dead. <laughs> what have they seen, right? So he takes the bowl, right? Tells the worshipers of Baal, make their altar. Each bowl, right? Put on the altar. And they begin to do their thing as the worshipers of Baal go first, right? They're starting to call upon the name of Baal. Oh, Baal, answer us. And they get started in the morning, if you can imagine. I'm not sure what they're doing. I think they're going around the altar. Maybe they're dancing. Maybe they're hitting drums. I'm not sure, but they're, they're going around. It's 9 o'clock. It's 10 o'clock. It's 11 o'clock. Nothing's happening all the way till noon. And it says in verse 26, I love this, they're limping around their altar. They're losing steam. They've been waiting, like Baal is not showing up, and now they're not just walking or running, they're actually limping like I do for the rest of my life now, um, around the altar, like because nothing's showing up, there's no voice. This is just, the end of our text is just so almost revealing, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Because idols don't have life. They're idols. They're false, right? And like I said, I, I, I love Elijah. In this moment, I don't know if it's good to mock anyone ever, but I guess it was appropriate as a prophet. And he begins to mock them as they're limping around. And I mean, just the language he uses, right? He, he's like, maybe he's on a journey. Maybe he's going to the bathroom. I don't know. Have you heard from him? I haven't. And he's just mocking them in this moment. And man, Despite being mocked, the worshipers of Baal continue. And they're continuing calling out on God. Why? Because they've been duped. They've been tricked. They firmly believe that Baal is a real God. Just like you and me. We've been duped. We really believe that money will satisfy us the more we have it. We really believe that, 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 that the things the world offers will really give us what we're looking for to the point of detriment to ourselves, right? But we're reminded there's no life. No one paid attention. It's like he can't speak. He can't answer. All of his followers think he's alive. They firmly believe it. It appears it, really. I mean, Baal seems to be someone who's alive. He has these followers. He's built amazing statues to honor him. I mean, people sacrifice to him. They pray to him. And despite appearances, it seems like Baal's alive, but he's not. He's dead. And as I've already said, this, this can't be more true of us. The, I, the idols in our own life that we give ourselves to our attention, our time, our treasure, our everything the ones that maybe stem from trauma, the ones that maybe stem from fear and other things in our lives. We, we believe that these are really going to satisfy us. But man, they can't hear us. There's no life in them, right? 
And because there's no life in the idols, there's no life in Baal, there's no life that can be given to the people. The same is true for us. No matter what it is in your own life, the counterfeit God, if you will, that you are crying after, you're calling after, you're, you're going after your life, even maybe subconsciously, and today maybe is the first time you realize that, oh, you've been struggling with it your whole life. Because there's no life in that idol, it can't give you life. It can't give you satisfaction. This is why the God of the universe, Jesus Christ, rose victoriously, coming to life. Therefore, he can give me life. He can bring me life. He's the only thing that can satisfy my soul, right? Rather than the opposite. Man, I'll just be honest with you. You might say, this is for you, that is for you. I'll just give you a practical example. This, this right here, for many pastors, can be an idol. A lot of different pastors. If I, if I was being honest, I say, it does, it's not like I don't start. I think every pastor struggles with it. Right? And even good things that we warp and manipulate for the wrong reason can become idols to your life to where man, uh, many pastors could get up here and preach on Sunday morning not because they want to see the people change or they want to see life change or they whatever. They want to build their own kingdom because, man, they want to be the guy that leads a movement or they want to be the person who has a really big church or whatever it is. Man, it's, it's, we're no different than you. But in that, man, there's no life. Because the idol has no life. We've actually taken something that God gave as a gift, as goodness, and we've warped it and changed it in many instances, believing that it will give life because we've been tricked by the devil that it will, and it will never. Whether it's money or sex or power, whatever it is, there's no life. They can't hear us. They can't respond to us. They can't comfort us. It's fleeting and it's broken. Because only life is found in Jesus. Not only, and do they not have life? The last thing I just want you to see quickly, if we go back to verse 29, is the idols actually take your life. They're, they're looking to rob you of your life. We skipped over verse 29. I want to go back to it, excuse me, 28. And it says this, and they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed upon them. Right? After Elijah mocks them and says, man, maybe he's sleeping, maybe he's out to lunch, maybe he's doing something. It says their response and what they continued to do because there's no life in their false god. They're like, maybe we could get the attention by cutting ourselves, by harming ourselves, right? Continue to appeal to their God, but he's not going to respond. But they're desperate, right? I can't imagine the scene. They're literally sacrificing themselves to a false God to try to get the attention of someone who has no life, literally destroying themselves. I can't tell you that loud enough. That is what idolatry will do in your life. It will destroy your life. It will destroy it, right? King David writes in Psalm 16, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. 
He's so true in that statement. He says, man, you abandon your, 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 your love for God and you go after other gods, it's ultimately going to end up in misery upon misery upon misery. It's going to might multiply. Why? Because they have no life. They will take your life. They want nothing but the opposite for you. They want nothing but detriment for you as you run after something that will never satisfy you. So again, I just ask you, how, uh, uh, what are the false gods in your life? What are the idols in your life? And what are they doing to you? What are the ramifications in your life? And how are they impacting your life? What sorrow have they caused in your life? This last couple of weeks, I've dealt with two or three individuals and families where idolatry has literally blown up their life or their family or whatever it might be because that's what happens, right? It takes our life. It leaves us miserable, and we strive after them continually thinking that we're going to get prosperity or emotional security or, or satisfaction or whatever it might be. But it'll never happen. And my heart in this whole text is not that we would just understand idolatry. They're like, hmm, that's really good. Gemma took some notes. and No, rather this text, our call is to do the opposite of what King Ahab did. This is our opportunity, my opportunity, to repent of the idols, to repent of them and say, no, that, I believe, Jim, what you're saying from Scripture, not because you're saying it, because from Scripture is true and right and good, and I believe that, and then I choose to repent that I've been believing before that these things will satisfy, these things will amount to what is good for me, right? Because this is the whole thing. This is the whole big idea for the entire sermon. I want you to know is that the Lord is the only God who gives life. He's the only one. We could chase after, run after everything in this world, but it's the only, it's the only person that will give life is the God of this universe. We see this in the verses that follow. I just want to read them in the few moments that I have left. As the story continues, this is the fun part of the story, right? Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. See, they'd already done that in the past. Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the son of Jacob, to whom the Lord, the God, came saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seas of seed, and he put the wood in order to cut the bull into pieces and laid it on the wood, and he said, fill four jars of water and pour it on the burnt offering and the wood. And he said, do it a second time, and they did it a second time. He said, do it a third time, and they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. Verse 36, and at the time of the offering of the... Um, Oblitation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham and Isaac and Israel, let it be known this day that you are the God of Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have troubled, um, excuse me, have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones. I don't know if you've ever burnt stones before. 
and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their face and said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them and Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slaughtered them there. You see, God has life. Calls all the people together. It's his turn to do his thing. And he makes the altar and the bowl. And he covers in water different three different times. Dill digs a trench so big that even the water was surrounding it. And he didn't do some special dance. He didn't like, you know, it wasn't erratic. He didn't, he didn't go on a frenzy. He didn't cut himself, nothing. Just a simple prayer. Oh, Lord, my God, hear me because he was doing exactly what the Lord called him to. And it says, fire falls down from heaven, consuming everything. And the people respond by, the Lord is God. The Lord, he is God. Because the Lord is the only one who gives life. And again, I, I don't know what, where you're at. I'll ask you the same question in the beginning, right? What idols do you have in your life? Maybe your step today is to just search your own heart and life to see where they are and what they are. I'm always convicted of Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 13. God responding to his people says, but my people have changed, excuse me, have changed their glory for what that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, because God is alive and he's satisfying and he's the only satisfying thing in life, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Man, if I could give you a definition of idolatry, it's right there. It's like digging a cistern, cistern that will hold no water. And when it doesn't, we go and dig another one that will hold no water. It only results in intense labor and complete failure. And if our lives are dedicated to idols in our lives, I promise you, your life will result in intense labor and utter failure. Intense labor of trying and trying and trying to get this God to satisfy this idol in your life and really resulting in utter failure. I invite the band to come and we're going to pray. My only response for you today is that you would, I would, we would repent of our idols, turn away from looking at our life, away from God, and really do hard work, which is oftentimes the hardest thing of saying, yep, there's a couple things that I really need to repent of and change. We're going to sing a song, <laughs> I'm sure you've heard it before, an old song that we used to sing for a long time, Give Us Clean Hands. I couldn't, we couldn't think of a more appropriate song. Oh Lord, cast down my idols. May today be reality of that. Don't just sing this, man, this is really nostalgic. It takes me back to camp, but really singing. Like, if you can't sing, just think and ask the Lord, God, reveal in me, search my heart, oh God, that we might be able to leave this place, not perfect, limping along through life, but today, not continuing and not walking in the idolatry that's in our own heart and our own life, but repenting of it, leaving it here, and walking out the door.
Would you pray with me? God, thank you for our time, the story of Elijah, who you are, God. I just thank you that you are the only thing, God, that satisfies as I often myself run around trying to chase after things that will never satisfy me. It's like digging another cistern that doesn't hold water. God, I pray over every individual that's here, every person that's online today, that you would bring the light in this moment as we declare, Lord, I want clean hands. I want to tear down the idols in my life. God, would you in this moment reveal those things to our hearts and our lives as we sing in this place? May it be actually a prayer of our hearts, not just words we say. In Jesus' name, amen.